Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, I've got good news. Next Sunday, we get to do this together. We've got our all-church outdoor gathering at 10 a.m., May the 31st. And that Sunday morning at the Edmond Rail Yard, we're going to get together. We're going to sing together. We're going to connect. We're going to just get time to share a meal and hang out. And I got to be together with some of the guys from my small group this week. And it was just encouraging to actually be in someone's presence and enjoy just talking. And we're going to get to that as a church family this week. So I hope that you're able to make that. If you're not, if you don't feel comfortable, don't feel safe, Obviously, no pressure um, to be there, but and we're just excited to get to see you, and I'm excited to get to be with you next Sunday. And then in June, we're going to have what we call watch parties, and so want to make sure those are on your radar. You can get on our website, go to our resources page, and you can sign up for a watch party there. But it's just going to be gatherings of people to get together on Sunday morning to watch uh, to watch the church online, and really just to participate and enjoy together, to sing together, share communion together, and be together as, as the family of God. And so uh, scattered together throughout our city. We're going to do that. So small groups will be getting together. We've got some other homes and places uh, where you'll be able to jump in. But we want to make sure that no one walks alone and everyone is known. And so we want you to jump into a watch party, get together with us if you feel safe doing so, and just to connect and get to get to be together as we worship uh, in the weeks ahead and coming, coming in June. So let me pray for us and we'll jump into the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, We just pray and we come to you and ask for your grace, for your mercy. We we trust that you are pursuing us even now, uh, that you are continuing in your grace to seek our hearts, Father, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that you would meet us even today, that as we study your word, that you would, uh, that you would explode it in our minds and our hearts, that we would trust you, uh, that we would see you, that we would believe that your love is real and that you are real. And so, Father, I pray, just as we, as we, as we shift into your word today, uh, that you would do work in my heart and in our hearts. Father, for your, your glory and for our good. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to actually finish the book of 1 Samuel today, and there are crazy things that go on through the rest of this book. We're about to see a witch, a seance, there's beheadings, there's kidnappings of women and children, there's bodies dangling, hanging off the wall. Uh, it, this is a crazy, crazy scene. So welcome to Redemption Church, Redemption Church uh, where we have positive, encouraging messages for the whole family. Uh, man, this is just a crazy text. and I'm going to guess most of you have never heard a sermon on this passage of scripture and, and the, the things we're going to look at today. And I think that's interesting because it says something, I think, about us that oftentimes we think we know better than God does what we need. And yet God has put this in his word for a reason. And so, man, let's lean in here. And I'm convinced that there is some truth and some hope here for, for each of us. And what we're going to explore today really is that kind of where do you look for strength when you've blown it and you've got yourself in a bad spot? Where do you look for strength when you've blown it and you've gotten yourself into a bad place? And we're going to see one answer to that question from Saul, and we're going to see a different answer from David. And in that, we're going to really see kind of what it is we need to do, uh, and that our answer to that question will also make all the difference for our lives. 
So let's get into the story. We've got four chapters to cover. And for those of you that know me as a preacher, you're getting nervous right now and thinking we may be here all day, but I promise you we're going to get through this. And there is lots of action here. This is like Sicario meets the Dark Knight meets Braveheart, all kind of thrown together in the last of this book. And so let me tell you what the writer's going to do. He's going to actually rearrange things to add to the drama. And so he's not going to go chronologically. So these, really the last five chapters of 1 Samuel, he actually rearranges it to add some tension and to make you compare and contrast David and Saul. And so if he went chronological order, it would look more like this. Chapter 27, and really you should throw in a couple verses out of 28 in there, but chapter 27 and the first two verses of 28, then it goes chapter 29, chapter 30, then it would go back to chapter 28 and then finish up in chapter 31. So the writer's not going to go in chronological order. He rearranges things to really just add to the drama and the enjoyment of the story, but I think also to, to prove a point about David and Saul. Uh, David and Saul in this book are both going to uh, be trapped by an enemy. They're both going to put their families in grave danger. They're both going to inquire the Lord, and they're both going to hear different results about their future, or different predictions about their future. And so the results in all these actions, even though their steps are similar, are going to be very, very different. So let's jump into 1 Samuel 28 and just set the scene with the first couple verses here. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered for their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you, are, that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And so David is set up in this place. And if you didn't catch last week's sermon, let me just kind of fill you in on what's been happening. But David actually has left Israel. He's gone away from the promised land to live with the Philistines. And he's rebelled against, uh, really, uh, against um, the Israelites. And in doing so, he's kind of become isolated and separated. And for 16 months, we see that David really wandered off the path of walking with the Lord. And so he's backslidden or regressed or gone backwards spiritually to the point that he's really ignored God for nearly a year and a half. And this King Achish has enlisted David as kind of a mercenary and his men uh, working for him. Now the Philistines are lined up. They're ready to go to war against Israel, David's own people. And David's got himself in this predicament where he's going to either have to go fight against his own people, the people that he's supposed to become king of, or he's going to have to turn and fight against the Philistines against incredible, incredible odds that he probably could not win. And so just when you've kind of, the writers led you right up to the ledge and got you leaning in and, and ready for the story, in verse three, he just breaks and goes in a totally different direction and interrupts the story. He kind of, it's really meant to be kind of like one of those, those moments where it says, uh, you know, we interrupt this broadcast with breaking news from the battlefront with King Saul and the Israelites preparing for war. We'll return shortly to David, but something important is happening with Saul, so we want to break away to that now. And the scene is just going to jump over to, uh, to Israel and to Saul. And that picks up in verse 3. It says, now Samuel had died. Samuel actually died earlier, so he gives you a little bit of a flashback to set up what's about to happen. It says, now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the media and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shinnom. And Saul gathered all Israel and they camped at Gilboa. Now when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. 
And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants told him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So what you see in Saul's scenario is he's about to go to war, and this is not going to be just a little border skirmish. This is going to be an all-out war between the Philistines and Israel. And what happens is facing ruins, often, oftentimes, and we in our desperation just start clamoring and looking for anything solid that we can hold on to that might give us some hope or some security, might give us some guidance. And that's really what you see with Saul. It says he was greatly troubled in his heart, and he begins to clamor and look for, look for help. Now, it's kind of a key point here is that Saul runs to the Lord, but the Lord does not answer him. And so it says three different ways. He says the prophets were silent, his prayers were silent, his dreams were silent. And the Urim, which is kind of the Old Testament way of rolling the dice, came back really inconclusive. And so Saul's just going, man, what do I do? I don't know where to turn. And the problem is that Saul's really treating God like a genie. He had ignored much of what God had told him to do, and now he wants in a moment of crisis to kind of go rub the genie's lamp and have God pop up and answer his problems. And this is a problem a lot of us have, that a lot of us treat God like a pillbox. We feel like, oh, I've got this little sickness. Maybe there's a God pill that I can take that'll just make that go away. And we approach God kind of mechanistically. We think, man, if I can pull the levers just right, I can produce something or make God do what I want. The problem is God doesn't show up on demand like a button on your remote that you just order down a little bit of God to you know, meet your need at the moment. He, he's not an app you can go out and download and say, hey, I want to click that app when I need it, but I, then I just want to you know, ignore it the rest of the time. And so what we see is that we all can fall into a trap of seeking God as a vehicle just to avoid our pain, avoid our guilt, uh, avoid our, our difficulties or our suffering. And, and it's not wrong to seek God in a crisis like Saul is, but it's wrong to seek God only for the purpose of escape. We need, to, we need to seek God for himself and not just expect him to do whatever it is we want. Now, Saul, uh, coming kind of to this dead-end place or as God's been silent to him, he goes looking elsewhere for guidance. And you see this over and over in Saul's life. That, and Saul is just, he's an impulsive, impatient, action-oriented, I want to fix the problem that I see sort of a guy. And he looks a lot like you and me, to be honest. And so whenever he's in, in a pinch, he just starts scrambling and looking for anything he can do. And he's done this throughout his life and it continues to get him in trouble. But here, you see the same thing. He says in verse 7, seek out to me a medium that I can go to her. And um, and his servant said, behold, there's a medium at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and he went to two men with him and they came to the woman by night. So it's interesting, in verse 3, it says that Saul had put out all the mediums from the land and he, he put out all the necromancers from the land. So he had taken all the kind of witchcraft and all the people that, that, uh, that kind of played in the games of, of the dead and he pushed them out of the land, which is what the law of the Lord commanded him to do. And so in a king, he sort of had tipped his hat to that. And yet it's interesting that here in this moment, he goes to his guys, he goes, hey, you know all those people we ran out? Do you know where they are? And they go, oh yeah, we know a lady. She's right over at Indoor. Let's go see her. And so they get dressed up. It's at nighttime. They're sneaking through. This is actually an incredibly risky thing because Saul has to actually weave his way through the enemy at night in disguise to go and seek this woman out. And so 
The problem here is that, that Saul knew this was wrong and he pushed him out of the land. But so often what we do with our sin is instead of just slamming the door on our sin, we just leave it a little crack. We, we leave a crack just a little bit open, just in case we need to go back, just in case we need to go back and, and, and maybe there's something there that would meet a need for us down, down the road. It's why the Bible says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. And yet Saul has left the door open. So he seeks out this woman and he's really seeking a seance. And this woman's obviously suspicious from the very beginning because she knows that Saul has, has, has outlawed this practice. And yet um, here this man is showing up at night asking her to participate in this seance. Now, what's fascinating here is that, that Saul actually swears to her that she'll be okay. And so he swears on the name of Yahweh that, what, that, that he won't punish her for doing what Yahweh had commanded her, him not to do. Uh, and so there's, the, the irony is kind of thick here. And Saul, is, he's religious to the end. He, he offered Samuel a state funeral. He's pushed the necromancers out. And yet he's continuing to run away from the Lord in the way in which he's seeking, these, uh, seeking to find an answer. So in verse 11... It says, then the woman said, and as they're kind of entering into the seance, whom shall I bring up for you? And Saul said, bring up Samuel for me. Samuel the prophet that had spoken to Saul so often in his life. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn your kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And it's a dramatic scene here. This is stuff straight out of Harry Potter, straight out of the movies. As this unfolds and you get just the drama of this supernatural experience and you're, it's meant to just kind of take you back. And um, my son Luke, a few weeks back, came to me and he goes, Dad, he goes, I'm waiting for chapter 28. I can't wait till we talk about the Witch of Endor. And he's been counting down the days to this one. Because what happens here is kind of confusing, isn't it? Saul goes to this witch in this Philistine place and he asks her, summon a dead prophet of Israel that they've already had a funeral for. They told us earlier in the book they already had a funeral and put Samuel on the ground and the whole nation rolled out to celebrate him as he died in the state funeral. And now Saul's having a seance and he's calling up Samuel and Samuel shows up. And so uh, as you think about that, um, th this woman sometimes called the witch of Endor and she's worked in summoning the dead. And so I think you know, one of the questions you ask is what happens? Because the seance seems to work here. 
And, and the woman herself, some people uh, look at this text and think, and she seems really surprised. Like when Samuel shows up, she's shocked. And so uh, some people think maybe, you know, she kind of, uh, kind of what she had done, she'd been running a sham and she's shocked that, wow, something actually happened. Like this whole thing actually worked. I don't have to play the game right now. And so she's fearful in, the, in this moment. Uh, but we really can't be sure. Scripture condemns this practice as evil, but it doesn't ever say whether there's some supernatural activity there or not. It's just something that is against the Lord, and so it's, con- it's condemned. But in this case, it appears that God's power allows Samuel to appear and to condemn Saul for his actions. And so there's this supernatural encounter between Saul and the dead prophet Samuel, and Samuel speaks to him. Now, can I show you what is really the heart of this entire scene? Some of the saddest verses in the entire Bible are in verse, or one of the saddest verses in the Bible is in verse 15, where Saul says, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. And what a horrific thing for the, the anointed king of God's people to say that God's turned away from me and answered me no more. Later, Samuel is going to second that and say that the Lord is against you. And this, uh, and really Samuel tells, uh, kind of if you sum up what Samuel says to Saul, can be summed up in this word, you stopped listening to God, so God stopped listening to you. Uh, Saul, you, you, uh, stopped, you stopped responding to God's direction and you thought you could chart your own course. So eventually God just kind of pulled back and said, okay, Saul, I'll leave you to yourself. And so God's no longer inter- interacting here with Saul, with Saul. And the most helpless place on earth is, is to be abandoned by the Lord, to be left to yourself. And you see that worked out in Saul's life. Now, really for us, I think what we need to understand is there's a danger of knowing what is right but not loving what is right. We, we can attend church and learn all the right words to say, but that's not the same as really loving God. There's, there's a way in which we can be orthodox, but that's not the same thing as being faithful. And Saul's playing an externally religious game, but his heart isn't relationally connected to the Lord. And so Saul is clamoring for security, looking for something, because every time we don't seek security in the Lord, we seek security in something else, it separates us further from knowing that we're in the will of God, and we have to find something to try to fill that void. And so God, if God's not our source of, of security and fulfillment, we're going to constantly be scrambling to attach ourselves to something else that we think can meet that need. And Saul continues to pursue, as he has, for something to fill that gap, and he's not finding it. And so he's continually he, just in a place of fear. In fact, in verse 20 it says, he fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. See, our our spiritual problems all stem from one of two problems. Either we don't trust the Lord or we're not satisfied in the Lord. And whenever we're not satisfied in God and his ways, we have to seek out other ways to do it, but they're unfulfilling and and insecure. And so they end us, we end up in a place like Samuel does, which is in great fear. And so the witch of Endor, this passage ends with her preparing kind of his last meal before his execution. Um, Samuel prophesies that, that the next day, Samuel says, you're going to be with me, meaning you and your sons are going to be with me in the, amongst the dead um, this time tomorrow. 
So you get pulled into the story and you see this and you see Saul kind of crumbling in this moment. And then all of a sudden the writer's going to do it again to us. He's going to shift radically and go right back to David. And it's like, we now return to our normally scheduled program. Uh, we will keep up with the developments of Saul and update you as things unfold. But until then, back to David and see what happens with him. So you, now you go to chapter 29 and we're actually pick up what happened in 27 and the very first of 28. Uh, you're going to actually, David's going to pick it. Uh, we're going to pick back up with the story of David in verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. All the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years since he deserted Israel and came to me? I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back. So Achish wants David on his side and he defends David. So the king of, of uh, King Achish comes to David's kind of and testifies and says, look, this guy's an honest man. We can trust him. And the, the Philistines though, uh, kind of laugh and go, are you serious? You want us to trust? You know that this is the David that all of Israel sang songs about saying Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And so they look at Achish and go, go dude, the ten thousands he killed, those were us. We're not going to take this guy into battle on our side and trust him. Send him home. And so Achish has to do that. Not the first time a commander in chief's been uh, sideways with his army, but with his army leaders, but he sends uh, David home. And then the story turns uh, honestly, almost comical. In verse uh, 6, what we see is just kind of some hilarious irony that Achish continues to defend David, even though David had repeatedly lied. Back in 27, David... Uh, continually goes off and says that he is, is, is fighting against the Israelites but he's actually fighting against the Amalekites and other kind of tribes around that area and he comes back and gives tribute to Achish but he lies to Achish and says oh yeah I was fighting up in Judah when he was actually fighting somewhere else and so then in verse 6 you get this kind of funny uh, interaction where Achish comes back to David and says look as the Lord lives so he actually talks about Yahweh he talks about Israel's God he uses the name that David would have used for God but David is and this whole time never mentions the name of God. But Achish comes and says, as the Lord your God lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should get to march out with me into this campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you in all the days of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve for you. So go back home now. And he sends him home on leave. And Achish, David gets all offended. He's like, but Achish, what have I done? Well, like, you mean against, except for lying from the very day you got there until now? Um, Achish answered David and says, look, I know that as you're, you're as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. And, and it could not be any over, more over the top. Achish is throwing out all this flowery language, praising David's integrity. And the whole time, David has been dishonest and disingenuous, and he's played a double game against Israel and, and the Philistines throughout his whole, t whole 16 month stay uh, in, in Philistia. Uh, and it's hilarious to me that David acts all offended. Uh, have you ever been there where you know you've done something wrong and someone puts you in a place where it kind of gets surfaced and your first instinct is to act all offended? Like, how dare you question my integrity? And yeah, David the whole time knows, like he hasn't, he hasn't been faithful to anyone through this, whole, through this whole section. And he's lied about everything. 
It's strange that Achish mentions God twice and David, who is the man after God's own heart, doesn't mention him once. So even though we don't see God in action in this story, what we see unfolding in this chapter is God is actually working a way of escape for David, even when David isn't smart enough to see it. God is pursuing David. He's protecting David. He's providing a way. And he actually has the enemy send David home so that David can, can be at home on leave while everyone else marches, marches off to a bloody war. We're meant to feel relieved as we read this story, that David was in this awful place of he's either going to have to attack and kill his own countrymen, or he's going to have to turn and fight against a huge army that he probably cannot defeat on his own. And so you're meant to see that he's narrowly escaped, and his men, and they go back and, and head back home to Ziklag. It's about a 60-mile journey, so it would have been a several-day's journey, and you imagine the relief they felt having, not ha- having been able to escape that, uh, that difficult place. And they you think they're in the best place possible, um, but then when they arrive uh, when they arrive home, and the story turns again, and you find out things are worse than they ever imagined. In uh, chapter thirty, let's pick it up in verse three. It says, "When David and his men came home to their city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive." Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices, and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Here you just have this horrific scene and you kind of see them coming back and as they are off in the distance, maybe the smoldering smoke rises from the raised city that was there and they don't see bodies so maybe there's a little bit of hope but they aren't too encouraged by that because they know what happens to people who are carried off, by, carried off as prisoners of war. And it says that they wept and cried out and screamed until they were so out of energy they could weep no more that they they had shed all the tears they could they could shed and in the middle of uh, this sadness gives way to anger and pretty soon they wanted someone to blame and so they looked at David and it says that they debated whether or not they should take David's life uh, imagine this is the lowest point that David ever experienced or the most alone he'd ever felt he'd uh, he'd run away from his own country because Saul and the Israelites had run him out and, and gone to the Philistines and now the Philistines have said look we don't want anything to do with that guy send him home send him away somewhere else and they've sent him away now when they go home they're in a place where his men want him dead and his own family has been hauled off as prisoners of war. And that's when we see an important shift in David. See, in verse six, we're gonna see a glimmer of, 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 of hope as David begins to, to, to renew his faith. And sometimes, sometimes you're brought low so that you learn to look up. In verse six, notice the last part there. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David returns to the Lord. For the first time in more than a year, David seeks God. And this isn't just some kind of magic pill or positive thinking or trying to use God like Saul tried to use God. David is seeking the Lord's face. He's strengthening himself in the Lord. Now, what does it mean when it says he strengthened himself in the Lord as God? Well, first, let me give you just three things I think that show up here. First, it's personal. David engages the Lord personally. Notice it refers to the Lord as his God. Now, this is where, this is where all of our strength has to come from. 
but it's got to be a personal relationship. And David returns to the God that he loved, the God that he had avoided and ignored, but the God that was still his God. And I mean, in this time, he may have lost his home, he may have lost his army, he may have lost his family, but he still had his God. And so he returns to him and he strengthens him in a way that's personal and real. Second, he remembered truth from God. David reminded himself of the promises and affirmations that God had given him in the past. In fact, this is the same phrase that was used earlier in 1 Samuel. It said that Jonathan, David's kind of best friend, strengthened David in the Lord. And when he did that, part of what it meant, it unpacked that and said that he reminded him of the promises God had given him, reminded him of the, the affirmations that God had given to David and who David was and what David David was called to do. And so it's reasonable to think David returned to that here as he strengthens himself in the similar way, the way Jonathan had strengthened him earlier. So first, he engaged personally. Second, he remembered truth from God. Third, he sought God's guidance for his situation. He remembered the means of God uh, to find God's will. And, and verse seven is meant to be connected to verse six. It says in verse six, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought the ephod to God and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, pursue, for you will surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out with his men. You remember what the primary problem with Saul was? When you go back to uh, that key phrase where it says that the Lord has turned away from me and will not answer me, you see something different here with David, don't you? David inquired of the Lord and says that, that the Lord answered him. They, they got answered. And this really is the, the crux of this entire passage. And so there's a sliver of hope. He says, you will pursue them and you will rescue them. And so that obviously motivates David and his men and they begin to move out. And so we see this dramatic scene that unfolds in verse, in verse 16. It says, and when he had taken... Uh, when he had taken him down, behold, the enemy was spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the, of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. And David removed, recovered all that the Amalites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove livestock before him and they said, this is David's spoil. Now, man, the, the action sequence here is, is amazing. You've got a group of people that had conquered and they're partying and David and his men come in and they rout him except for 400 young men that hop on camels and hightail it out of there. And yet verse 19 is meant to say that everything has, has been restored. It says nothing is missing, nothing great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Is kind of putting a happy ending on the story and saying, man, all is well that ends well. And I think that's true in a sense, but man, can you imagine the trauma counseling these people needed after this whole event? Um, but David's going to um, divide the spoils of war fairly amongst his men. Uh, he's he's going to wisely send some of it even home to, to Judah. But David recognizes God's grace in all this. In fact, in verse 23, he refers to all the spoils of war. And what he says is what, uh, that this is what the Lord has given us. God has preserved us and given into our hands this band that came against us. 
See, there's a difference between grace thinking and works thinking. David sees what, what has happened here as a, as a gift from God, as a mercy of God, as, as a grace of God. Grace says, look what the Lord has given to us. Works said, would have said, hey, look what I've gained for us. Hey, look, look what I've been able to do. And so David's theology of grace and David's humility in knowing that, man, he, he has done nothing but get himself in trouble in this situation, and it's the Lord that's brought about rescue. And so his theology of grace directs his steps. Now, can I give you just an interesting side note here? David fled from Judah and actually abandoned Judah and went off to the Philistines for the last 16 months and he ignored the Lord during that, during that time. It's interesting to me that, the, that when David renews his faith in the Lord, the, one of the first things he does is he actually renews his commitment to God's people. And so he hasn't contacted them in over a year and a half, but the first thing he does in verse 26, then once they've, they're kind of back in a place of safety, it says that when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. And David's back to acting like a king. He's back to acting like a man of faith again. And when he's reconnected to the Lord, he wants to reconnect with the Lord's people. And so just when that story is settling in and you think, man, this is going to end pretty well. The, soul, the scene is going to shift back to Saul and you get another one of those break-ins. We're now breaking in to give you an update on shocking developments in today's battle against the Philistines. And they're going to give a heartbreaking announcement from the battlefront. And you almost hear the ominous music beginning to play, setting up the story. In verse 31, we go back to Saul. Now the Israelites were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malachishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and all his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled uh, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned all their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Goboa. So they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the gospel or good news of their defeat to the house of their idols and to the people. They brought his armor to the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went out, went all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the ball of Bethshan, and they came back to Jabesh and burned them alive, or burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And that's the end of the book. And and Saul's armor ends up in Bashan. His head ends up in Philistia. His body and the bodies of his, his headless sons end up hanging from the wall of Bashan. And his statement's clear. That the, the, 
the Philistines have defeated Israel and the Philistine gods have defeated the God of Israel. In fact, what's happening in this sharing of the good news of Israel's defeat is they're announcing kind of the shame and disgrace that's been brought on Israel's God. The historian Edersheim wrote this. He says, And now it was night, and the headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, swung in the wind on the walls of Bashan, amid the hoarse music of vultures and jackals. And what a tragic scene. And the most tragic thing is that it really didn't have to end this way. This is the sad part about, about compromise, about choosing a, a mediocre faith of pretend religion, about refusing to listen to God and repent, is it always leads us to, uh, to a dangerous place. And uh, Saul's story began good, but it ended horribly. And uh, they, they give you a little bit of a, a nod to try to soften the blow at the end when it talks about the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. It's actually meant to remind you of how well Saul started. The first thing we see in the life of Saul was that the Spirit of God came on him in power and he rushed to the defense of the people of Jabesh Gilead and he defeated and ran out the Philistines guarding and protecting uh, this, this tribe of people, uh, the, the, the Jabesh Gileadites. And so that was the first thing that happened. And you notice that they remembered, that they remembered what it was that Saul had done for them. And because of that, because they had never forgotten, they, they have a debt of gratitude to Saul and they bravely run into, run into enemy territory, retrieve those bodies and bring them back for burial. But it reminds us that Saul started well. Who was Saul? He was a guy from a good family. He had a good spiritual heritage. He, he, he was a, an impressive figure. He was a celebrated first king. He was a victor in battle. He was a church-going man. He, he was a man who tried to do right much of the time, a father who wanted the best for his son. He did what he could to try to set Jonathan and, and his boys up for success. But jealousy and fear caused him to fix his eyes on his circumstances rather than God. And that continually led him to become just a spiritual mess. And so ends the chapter, uh, the, the book of 1 Samuel. And what we're meant to see is this is the, the complete descent of Saul. And it's simultaneously happening with the ascent of David. And so we'll pick up 2 Samuel soon and we'll begin David's reign as king as the things begin to transition. So let me ask you this question. What do we do with all of this? Uh, a lot of material, a lot of craziness that's happened. What do we do with all this? Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is need, while he is near. The, the, the invitation here is to, to seek the Lord. We, we need to be like David. We need to, in, even in our places where we've run away from the Lord, in our places, in our, in our broken moments, in, in our places where we've got ourselves in a fix or in a mess that we don't see a way out of, we, we need to allow that lowering of ourselves to cause us to look up to God. And then we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord as David did. What's fascinating in the story is God's mercy still pursues David even in his foolishness and his walking away from God's path. God's, God's mercy and his patience are not easily exhausted. David, David doesn't outrun them. And when David sort of tosses the Lord aside, the Lord doesn't, doesn't toss David aside. The Lord seeks out David and, and runs after him. And we need to learn to, to trust the Lord in those moments. And, and like David, instead of running, continuing to run, we need to stop. And we need to look to the Lord. We need to seek his face. And we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. 
Friends, we are far more broken and sinful than we ever realized, and yet at the same time, we're far more loved and welcomed by God than we ever dreamed possible. We need to know that is true. And in all the twists and turns of our stories, can I just tell you that God can redeem every single one of the twists and turns of your story. God can, he can redeem every broken moment. He can restore every sorrow. He can mend up every, every, every place of hurt. God continually redeems us and he won't waste anything from the life. If we surrender to his grace, he continually undoes even the damage that's been done. And finally, we know he will. Now, here's where I want to end as we think about this, this section. Consider all that David had been through. David was, was a shepherd boy called home for a surprise prediction he'd be king. He killed Goliath, the, the, the giant, as a teenage boy. He uh, had an invitation to come play, play music for a depressed king. He spent time dodging spears that were hurled by his, uh, the man he had served, Saul. He had a rise to, to celebrity only to have a dramatic fall and be rushed out of the country. He had years and years of being hunted unjustly as an enemy. He had long years of waiting on God's promise to come through. It's hard not to see how all of that shows up in the Psalms that David wrote, particularly in the most famous Psalm that David wrote, Psalm 23. I want to end simply by reading Psalm 23. And I want you to consider all these words, all these words would have meant for David and what they mean for you. And just as I read, uh, and you think about the life of David and everything we've seen in 1 Samuel up to this point, I just want you to let these words kind of roll over you and just, just absorb them. Just think about the way in which David has not perfectly navigated this, but the way in which this represents his strengthening himself in the Lord his God and, and trusting even in the midst of the twists and the turns of his story. So let me read for you. And if you want to simply close your eyes and just reflect on this, or if you want to read aloud, do, do what feels helpful to you in this moment. But I want us just to, just to soak in this as we close. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it's a beautiful psalm written by a shepherd boy who's lived a, a life of several decades with lots of twists and turns. I want to point out just one thing in this as we finish. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. When it says follow me, that may actually not be strong enough. It really is surely goodness and mercy will pursue me. Surely goodness and mercy will seek me out. God's mercy and his goodness are so overflowing that he runs after us seeking to pour it out. And so in this season, wherever you are, man, would, you, would you rest in God's pursuing grace and his pursuing mercy? Friends, God is for you. Now let's trust him. Let's strengthen ourselves in, in the Lord our God. And if you've been running from him, if you're in a broken place right now, 
would you allow that to lower you to a place where you look up and, and you truly seek him? Because you will find him if you do. We pray for us. Father in heaven, our lives are full of twists and turns. Our lives are full of ups and downs. We regress spiritually sometimes and we press ahead. Um, other times, Father, we often are wayward. We are never as faithful as we ought to be. And yet, you pursue us in your mercy. You seek us with your grace. Your love is overflowing and always abounding and always ready to welcome us home. Father, might we rest in that today. Father, we know that the circumstances of our lives and circumstances of this world, they don't shake you. They don't worry you. There's no trembling in you at all. And so, Father, would you gird us up and strengthen us uh, for the day that we might seek you and trust you in all things. Uh, Father, for your glory and for our good. Father, we pray it in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.